Father, we, God, depend upon you and trust in you in every way. And I think of COVID-19 and the responses that, that have been and uh, various responses and very strong feelings on both sides. God has made things very difficult for us as a church to seek unity. We have tried. We've, we've tried to um, not to put a stumbling block in others' ways as we have encouraged masks every week, not for ourselves. I know I have hated wearing a mask. Yet, Father, we have sought to do that just for the sake of where things are. Just thank you for us and America and where things are. I know things are different in India and Nepal, where the, the crowding is much more and where the, uh, the wealth is not there and the vaccines are not there. And we do pray for them. Um, and so I pray for us that we would be, be strong, that we would seek unity, that we would seek love, even as we as elders have sought to to put this forth in, in unity and in grace, believing this is the best for us. Now, Father, would pray you'd protect us. I pray you'd watch over us. And I pray that the fellowship in weeks and months and years to come would be, uh, would be genuine and heartfelt and wonderful and uplifting and edifying. God, to press us on till that day, uh, till that day comes as we long to be with Christ, and we long to taste here on earth, God, what, what things are like in heaven with perfect fellowship. God, so guide us in these things, direct us, and, and I pray even now as we will open your word, I pray we would do so with, with humble hearts, God, hearing all that your word has to say to us, I pray you'd help me, God, to know and understand what to say and what to speak. May your spirit come and empower me and open the hearts of hearers to fully understand just uh, the implications of the gospel coming to Samaria and, and Simon Magus's response. God, we love you and thank you and pray even right now in this hour you'd meet with us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I don't know what I was doing during high school history class, but uh, for some reason, I, I missed the Manhattan Project. I, how many of you know what the Manhattan Project is? Lots of you. I did not know what the Manhattan Project was. Maybe I was, I was gone that day or I was sick that day. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. But the Manhattan Project was the code name of the research development of the first atomic bomb. The name of the project, Manhattan, is uh, where research first began. It, it began in, in Manhattan, New York. And plans for the project began in 1939 when a couple physicists even were, were surveyed and were, were talked to. Enrico Fermi uh, was, was asked about whether the using the power created by uranium can be used for military purposes. And uh, he agreed, Albert Einstein also even weighed in on it that an uncontrolled nuclear chain reaction could be employed as a, as a weapon. So in 1940, the government issued a, a grant for $6,000 to begin research on this. Uh, but by 1942, two years later, the United States was uh, fully engaged in war with the Axis powers in Europe. Uh, Pearl Harbor had just happened. We're just engaging there. Fear was mounting that Germany was working on their own nuclear bomb. So the United States government basically said, spare no expense, let's get this bomb. And rather than $6,000, they spend, end up spending some $2 billion to get the bomb. Some 130,000 people ended up working on this project. But it began in Manhattan, transferred to Chicago, uh, where Enrico Fermi had uh, first successfully um, set off a fission chain reaction. And then, and then across our nation it was there. Um, but finally in 1945, 
the culmination of the product came to, and I'm going to mess this up, Adriana, you're not here, but Yornado del Muerto Desert of New Mexico, right there where they could test the bomb. And uh, it was chosen here because of its security and safety. It was mostly unpopulated, entirely under government control. And uh, there's a picture of, of the gadget, is what they called it, the, the bomb that they were going to test that day. And they had to wait for a day of good visibility, low humidity, and light wind so as to reduce the radiation fallout. And uh, sure enough, that day came on July 16th, 1945 at 5.30 in the morning. The device exploded with energy equivalent to 22 kilotons of TNT. Now, I have no idea what 22 kilotons of TNT is. Um, I just know that's a lot. That's a, a strong power. It even exceeded the uh, expectations of the scientists who were expecting 5 to 10 kilotons. This was like three to four times larger than what they were expecting explosion felt 100 miles away. The mushroom cloud reached seven and a half miles in the air. Listen to how one man, Thomas Farrow, worked on the project, witnessed it, and he said in his official report, he said this, quote, the lighting effects beggar description. The whole country was lighted by a searing light with the intensity many times that of the midday sun. It was golden, purple, violet, gray, and blue. It lighted every peak, crevice, and ridge of the nearby mountain range with a clarity and beauty that cannot be described but must be seen to be imagined. They got some calls from some citizens and said, mm, I think I heard something. I think I saw something a little bit different. And so the Air Force issued a press relief release saying, yes, there was an explosion. Um, there were some high explosive and pyrotechnics exploded, but no loss of life or injury. Just nothing to see here, folks, is basically what they said. And today, the site there is a National Historic Landmark with an obelisk of the site with a plaque that reads, Trinity Site, where the world's first nuclear device was exploded on July 16, 1945. You can visit there today. Um, it's, a, it's a place where you can go. But then, less than a month later, after this test, bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, so powerful they killed several hundred thousand people. And, and the power of these bombs is, is difficult to imagine. But from best I can uh, understand and compare, these three bombs, the test in New Mexico and Hiroshima and Nagasaki, are the largest, most powerful thing our, our, our race has ever experienced or produced. Now, modern warheads are like 60 times as powerful as these. Draws us to prayer for sure. But I tell you all this because our text this morning is about power. And it's about pursuing power, like the United States pursued power to get this atomic bomb. And this morning we're going to see the pursuit of power as well. However, it's not the pursuit of atomic power. It's the pursuit of spiritual power. The title of my message this morning is the pursuit of spiritual power. It's what we see in our text. We see people pursuing spiritual power. Some pursue it rightly, but there's one man, the focus of our text, who pursues it wrongly. His name is Simon the Magician. And the stories are told in Acts chapter 8. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open up to Acts chapter 8. This morning we're going to look at verses 9 through 25 as we just work through our, our text together. And as I, I read this passage, I want for you to listen to Simon. I want you to listen for the power that he pursues. Acts 8, 9 through 25. But there was a man named Simon 
who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Both men and women, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now these verses here are a mere continuation of the story that we began last week. Last week we saw the people of God scattered because of persecution. Stephen was stoned to death and anyone following Jesus might be subject to the same consequences. And so the Christians scattered. They scattered north and they scattered south. They scattered north to Samaria. They scattered south to Judea. And in Acts chapter 8, we're going to see the results in, four, in both places. First, in Samaria. We will see that. We saw that last week a little bit. We'll see that even more this week. Next week, we'll look at Judea. Last week, we saw Philip coming to Samaria and the city welcoming him. Um, and, and many people were believing in the Jesus he was preaching about. But the contrast comes really in verse 9 with the sour apple if you will, from Samaria. His pursuit of power was for himself and for his own profit. That's my first point here this morning. Power for self. That's what Simon was doing. Verse 9, we are introduced to this man, but there's a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Here is his name. His name is Simon. Sometimes he's called Simon Magus. Simon the magician. It says that he, he practiced magic. Now, when you hear magic, right, don't, don't think it was merely a, a magician like, um, like Harry Houdini who did Great Escapes or of Penn and Teller who liked to do sleight of hand. I, I think it was a bit larger than this, right? He didn't, he didn't take a ping pong ball like this. You got this, kids? Right? He didn't take a ping pong ball like this and make it disappear. He didn't do that. That was not his, his magic. His magic was a little bit different. He was engaged in sorcery, and he was engaged in um, witchcraft, dipping into the demonic world to engage and astonish, telling the future, fortune-telling. Some have even called this man not Simon the magician, but Simon the sorcerer. 
That's probably a better name for her. Simon the sorcerer. And God told Israel to avoid such people as this. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18 and verse 10. There shall not be a found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. Forever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. That's the sort of man we're dealing with here in Simon the Sorcerer, practicing omens, fortune-telling, dealing with dead spirits. And he was to be um, uh, cast away. He was to be ignored. It was an abomination to the Lord what he was doing. And he was famous in Samaria. In verse 9, we see him drawing attention to himself. It says that he was saying that he himself was somebody great. Right? He was like Muhammad Ali who said, I am the greatest. And when performing his sorcery, right, he'd lift up his hands and said, I'm Simon the Great, and trying to bring all this attention to himself. And the people believed it. He had this power he was seeking for himself. Look at verse 10. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. That's where you can see my first point. We see Simon seeking power for himself, or power for self. And Simon's power wasn't for good. Simon's power was for Simon. He loved the recognition. And he fed off that recognition. People were calling him the power of God. That, that's essentially calling him Messiah. This Simon is Messiah. He is the power of God on earth. And, and Simon wasn't merely a flash in the pan. He wasn't some huckster going about selling his elixir and then moving on to the next town after he'd conned his people. Now, he was a permanent fixture in Samaria. Look at verse 11. It says, they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. I mean, we're talking years. We're talking possibly even decades that Simon the sorcerer was there in Samaria. And that's why it's so astonishing that he believed. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, even Simon himself believed. What an amazing thing. Philip the sorcerer believed Philip's message. Verse 12 tells us what his message was. He was preaching two things. He was preaching good news about the kingdom of God, and he was preaching the name of Jesus Christ. Now, in some regards, this is what John the Baptist was preaching. He was preaching the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is what Jesus was preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist said, right, repent, the kingdom of God's hand, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was saying, repent for the kingdom of God's hand, look at me, I'm the Messiah. That was his message. But Philip could bring greater clarity to his message because he lived after the cross. And he could preach Jesus in a way that even Jesus couldn't preach, because he could preach the resurrection firm and established. We saw last week that Philip's message was summarized in verse 5. Look there, when he came to Samaria, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ that is preaching all about Jesus. And it's preaching uh, about probably just much like the apostles preached. His, his life and death and burial and resurrection and ascension and exaltation. That's what it meant that, P, that Philip was, was preaching the kingdom of God and Jesus. Maybe he said something like this, right? The time has come and God has visited his people He's establishing his kingdom. 
and to turn away from your ways and follow in the ways of the Lord. Jesus from Nazareth was a man appointed by God. He went about doing good, healing all who were afflicted by the devil, for God was with him. But the Jewish leaders hated him because he was exposing their wicked ways, focusing his attention upon their evil hearts rather than their religiosity, which was corrupt. And they killed him, crucifying him upon the cross. They buried him like they did any dead man. And though he was in the ground, he raised the third day from the grave and, made, and he appeared to his disciples. He even ate and drank with these men. But after 40 days of being with them, he ascended into heaven and now he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by the builders, but it's become the chief cornerstone and there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's Philip's message about the kingdom of God and about Jesus. And many Samaritans believed the message and they responded like all New Testament believers responded. That's what verse 12 says. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ, right? when they heard that and when they believed it, they responded. They, it says there that they were baptized, both men and women. This is the response of every New Testament believer, right? That come to faith and, and believe that Christ died for your sins. And, and you embrace that and you turn from your sins. Right? In the New Testament, they always express their faith afterwards to the waters of baptism. This is the first time in Acts we see it. We will see it. Actually, we saw it in Acts 2. Um, but we will see it again and again and again. Of people coming to faith and then baptizing. And, and baptizing was just like John did at the River Jordan where it, took them down by the river, they confessed their sins, and they dunked in the river, immersed, and they came out just as a, a symbol of their, their cleansing, a symbol of their identification with Jesus, that I'm with Him now. It's a sign of their repentance. And so it is with Christian baptism. Right? You, you, you identify yourself with Jesus. You say, I'm a believer in Christ. He tells me to get baptized, and so I, I'm baptized in His name, confessing my faith in Him. And by the way, we're just hoping to have a baptism service this, this summer. Just talk with several people of our congregation who need to be baptized, want to be baptized, but haven't been baptized yet. So if you haven't been baptized after you've come to faith in Christ, talk to me. And uh, we'll see that done. But in our text, we see many people being baptized. Because men and women were believing. Both men and women. There's an emphasis there. It's not just the men. It's, it's the women also. And even Simon believed. And even Simon was baptized. Look at verse 13. Even Simon himself believed, and after being believed, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. He was Simon the sorcerer, professing his faith in Jesus and being baptized. I mean, I could just realize the, the missionary letters, right? The testimony coming back from the apostles. Like, Here's a Simon, the sorcerer. This, this man was on the dark side, has now come to Jesus. Right? Maybe newsletters got sent out. Emails got sent out. Hey, this person is part of the kingdom. Wonderful. And as he joined with the believers, here's Simon, right? He was amazed at the great signs and miracles, right? Because these were authentic. These were like the real thing. And, and literally in verse 13, it says, and seeing signs and great power. There he is, seeking this power. Simon was amazed and he loved this thing. He loved the spiritual power. He loved and he pursued this power so much so to profess his faith and go through the waters of baptism to get and enjoy this power. Now, sadly, Simon was seeking power for himself as we see here in, in uh, my first point, power for self. 
But we get the second point, power from God. This is for 14 through 17. This is talking about the apostles are bringing a power from Jerusalem into Samaria. It's the power from God. It's the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 14, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, somehow, in some way, news reached Jerusalem that those in Samaria received the Word of God. Uh, don't know how, but, but somehow people got traveled back, you know, went, went up to Jerusalem and said what was happening, and the apostles there heard it, and uh, were probably, on one hand, um, surprised. On the other hand, it's to be expected. I mean, Jesus had told the apostles who were in Jerusalem that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. That's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We come back to that again and again and again because that's the outline of the book of Acts. You'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, Acts chapters 1 through 7. And then in Judea and Samaria, Acts chapters 8 through 12. And then to the remotest parts of the earth, that's Acts chapter 13 and beyond. And so when the gospel reached Samaria, it's no surprise. On the other hand, I think they were surprised. Samaria? The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans were seen by the Jews as traitors. They betrayed the covenant of God that he had established with the nation of Israel. Here's what God said when dealing with other nations. Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4. You shall not intermarry with other nations, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. That's exactly what those in Samaria did. When the Assyrians came and conquered the Jews in the north, northern region here, we talked about Jerusalem is in the, the south, and you go up to north and you get Samaria. The Assyrians came and conquered them. The Jews could have remained a separate people and just intermarried among their clan and among all their people, but they didn't. They went after the Assyrians and, and they intermarried with them. The Jewish men took Assyrian daughters as wives. And Assyrian men took Jewish daughters as their wives. As a result of this intermixing, the, the Samaritans became known as, as half-breeds. They were mutts. They were dogs. They were, were this racially outcast group. And the Jews hated the Samaritans. And, and I, I just say this hatred upon them is hard for us to understand. In some regards, we can understand this living in a time of racial tension in America. Where you have white and black and Hispanic and Arab. But our tension, by the way, is nothing compared to the tension with the Jews and the Samaritans. This way, Acts is so helpful for us, going to be helpful, because it helps us deal biblically with this whole racial um, reconciliation, this racial tension that we have. And for the most part, listen, right in, in our day, what's the phrase? Black lives matter. Right? It's the banner spread for all to see. Black lives matter. Now, for the most part, we in our nation say, yes, black lives matter. But the kickback comes, and others will say, well, yes, well, blue lives matter too. All lives matter. Not yes, black lives, white lives, brown lives, yellow lives, all lives matter. And then when someone says that, then there's a battle like, no, 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 you don't understand. It goes back and forth. That, that's our nation. But it, imagine with me, if you will, you're going from Jerusalem to Samaria, and there's a sign along the side of the road that said, uh, Samaritan lives matter. The Jews of that day would not say, yes, Samaritan lives matter, but also Jewish lives matter and Assyrian lives matter. They would not say that. 
If they saw a sign that said Samaritan lives matter, they, they would say, no, they don't. Samaritan lives don't matter at all. The Samaritans betrayed our nation and they are under the judgment of God. They don't matter. So like what, what we see with Black Lives Matter is like a little bit, like we all affirm that. Yes, yes of course Black Lives We Unborn lives matter, right? Certainly, but, but them, Samaritan lives matter? <laughs> they do not matter. They're half-breeds, they're traitors. Their lives doesn't matter. That's the perspective that we have in Acts. And we're going to see that just more and more. And maybe even the, the Jew who came down from Jerusalem to Samaria could have quoted what I read you earlier. The anger of the Lord will be kindled against them. God is angry with them because they have betrayed our nation. And, and you see an illustration of that in Luke chapter 9, 52 through 54, where in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus had set his heart to go towards Jerusalem. And uh, they were in Galilee, and so they're coming down through Samaria on their way to Jerusalem. And as they went to some of the villages of the Samaritans, it says in Luke 9, 52, He sent messengers ahead of them who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Jesus says, we're traveling down, I need preparations there. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem, right? The heart of the Samaritans were hard towards Jesus. And when the disciples James and John saw it, saw how they treated Jesus, and saw how they treated the disciples, these worthless Samaritans, they said this, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Like, these people, their lives don't matter. They refused us. They deserve to die. Their hatred is so strong, James and John want to consume them. But that's not the heart of Jesus. When this took place, Jesus says, Luke 9, 55, 56, Jesus turned and rebuked his disciples. And they went on to another village in Samaria that presumably received them and helped them. But the disciples were learning their lesson. And it was not an easy lesson to learn. We're going to see throughout Acts this, this wrestling with this racial issue. We're going to see it in Acts 10. We're going to see it in Acts 11. We're going to see it in Acts chapter 15. But at any rate, when it comes here, the apostles hear that Samaria received the word. So they sent representatives to Samaria, Peter and John. By the way, this is the same John who wanted to call fire down from heaven against those Samaritans who didn't receive them. Right? So there's something happening in his heart, in his mind, and I would say it's the, the power of the Holy Spirit has changed John as he's, he's coming down here. And I just say this, if anything's going to heal our nation of the racial divide, the racial tension we have, it's going to take the power of the Holy Spirit. It's like the only way it's going to happen. Because it happened with John. He received the Spirit and was different. He went down to Samaria. We read in verse 15 that Peter and Jan, John came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And the explanation is given in verse 16, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, that might sound strange to us. Apostles coming laying hands, and then the Holy Spirit's coming upon people. Because when we believe today in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. See, it's the Spirit of God that transforms us. Titus 3, verse 5, He saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. How has He saved us? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Right? We believe and trust in Christ. The Holy Spirit's coming and it's changing us. It's regenerating us to be a new creation, something that wasn't ever before. The Spirit comes upon us and changes us, and, and we believe and we trust in God. 
Paul said in Romans 8 9 that having the Spirit is an indication of faith. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't have faith. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. And so, so if you belong to Him, you have the Spirit of Christ. But here we see people belonging to Jesus, believing and trusting in Jesus, but not yet receiving Jesus. And, and, the, and the key to this is this, that Acts is a book of transition. It's transitioning us from the old ways of the old covenant to the new ways of the new covenant. And, and just even here, right? The gospel's going out to Samaria. It's going to go to Judea. And then it's going to go out to the ends of the earth. Right now, it was just Jews in Jerusalem, right? And, and they received the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But here's like this new people group. And, and they're receiving the Spirit. In fact, when we see in John, in uh, Acts chapter 10, when Peter goes to the Gentiles, we're going to see the Holy Spirit come upon the Gentiles as he's still preaching. And I think one of these, this is a transition. The gospel going to the Samaritans. Right. In other ways, uh, this maybe is a, a little bit different, is the, is the gift of the Spirit and how it's, how it's exactly bestowed. And you say, why did the apostles have to come down? Couldn't Philip have merely just prayed and given them the Spirit? And the Spirit coming, I mean, he was the preacher. Couldn't he not have done that? And I just read from a commentary. I think it distills this really well. Simon Kistemacher says it. Did Philip have the ability to pray for the gift of the Holy Spirit? Certainly had the ability, for he himself was full of the Spirit. Acts chapter 6, verse 3. However, God sent the apostles Peter and John to Samaria to signify that through the apostles, he officially approved of a new level of development of the church, adding the Samaritan believers. God confirmed this new phase by sending the Holy Spirit as a visible sign of his divine presence. As he declared his presence among the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, so he affirmed his nearness to the Samaritan believers. And that's why the Samaritans received, as my second point says, power from God. It, it's interesting, it's not called power in verses 14 through 17, but in verse 19, when, when uh, Simon is looking at it, he calls that very event the power of God. So I say this is power. So let's even see this as we get to verse 19. We see Simon again. We've seen the power for self with Simon. Then the power of God come down. And then Simon now seeking more power for self. That's how to understand this passage. In verses 18 through 24, we see uh, Simon's true heart come out. It says this, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. There he was. Simon wanted power. He wanted spiritual power. I mean, he was always the guy to dazzle and amaze with spiritism. And now he saw the power that the gospel brought, and he wanted it. He wanted it bad enough that he professed faith and went through the ritual of baptism to get this power. And now he's able to see and experience the Holy Spirit coming down. And he wants that too. And, and the only way he knew how to get it was through money, right? Tell me your secrets. Maybe that's how he got all his sorcerous secrets of the trade. By, set, by, by giving money to people who told him of their secrets. And he made this deal. He says, I give you cash and you give me the power. This attempt to purchase the Holy Spirit demonstrates really how lacking Simon was in understanding grace. He didn't understand that God's grace comes freely based upon faith, based upon trusting in Christ. See, God isn't in the business of, of having us pay for spiritual benefits. That's the error of the Pharisees, right, who set up shop in the temple, right? Pilgrims would travel to Jerusalem with cash in hand. 
And their deal was, right, you give me the cash and I'll give you an animal to sacrifice. And it was a tit for tat, right? They'd come and they'd pay and they'd get this animal and they'd offer it up, they'd sacrifice it for forgiveness of sins. And basically their mindset was, I'm paying money for this animal so that I can have forgiveness of sins and be right with God. Remember what Jesus did? He made a whip of cords. And he drove out the money changers and overturned the tables in the temple. And he said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. See, God doesn't need or God doesn't want your money in exchange for some spiritual favors. He doesn't want that. He gives to us freely. Just as we trust in him and as we cry out to him and depend upon him. See, the Christian life comes, comes by faith and not by money. Peter made this clear, responding just like Jesus did. Look at verse 20. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon answered, pray for me, pray to the Lord, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. I mean, Simon's confrontation here is about as confrontational as it gets. He says, Simon, you are so wrong. You think that you can pay for God's gifts. You can't pay for his gifts. He doesn't demand payment. He gives freely to beggars. In fact, he delights in beggars who ask, and you are not right with God. You are merely seeking power for yourself, and your soul will be destroyed. And I'm praying that your money will perish with you, that when you go to the tomb, you are buried with your very money that you sought to pay for this. So repent, Simon, and God may forgive you of this sin. Listen, you need to pray because your sin is evident. May the Lord have mercy on you. Simon's response was telling when he said, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you say may come upon you, may come upon me. See, rather than repenting and seeking forgiveness from the Lord, Simon asked Peter to pray for him. I think Simon's focus, furthermore, was upon the consequences of his sin. Pray that nothing of what you said may come upon me. See, that's not repentance. That's not genuine. Repent, genuine repentance says, yes, I sinned. And God, you are fully justified. Do to me whatever. I fully embrace that. I fully will accept that. But I just plead you be merciful to me. But, but Simon basically said, no, 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 I don't want those bad things to happen to me. That's not genuine repentance. And, and I think Simon just plain didn't get it. I mean, Peter, sure, he could pray for him. He could pray for repentance. But Peter couldn't change his heart. Uh, Peter could pray for God's mercy. But Peter can't give God's grace. But if Simon would pray, it's totally different. See, God forgives the one who cries out to him with a heart, a sincere heart that begs and pleads God in the mercy of the blood of Jesus Christ. See, when coming to God, you don't ever come by proxy. That's why priests are an abomination, right? You come to this priest so he can pray to you. That's, that's an abomination. God says, no, you come to God on your own, right? When you come to God, you come to God. It's not when you come to God, your parents come to God, or someone else comes to God. You come to God. And Simon stands really great lesson for all of us. Listen, right? We're not saved by the profession of our faith, as Simon did. We're not saved by our baptism. Simon did both of these things. We're saved by a heart 
that genuinely trusts in Jesus Christ and is humble and repentant towards him. Now, it's interesting with Simon, we don't know how it ended. We aren't told. And I think there's probably a reason why we're not told, because it brings us inward to ourselves, causes us for some self-reflection. We're simply told in verse 25 that these apostles, Peter and John, they testified and spoke in the word of the Lord. They returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So they were done in the city, and they just kind of returned, walked right on up, to Jerusalem, preaching along the way as they did. I have two final applications for us. First application is evangelism. I think Simon ought to teach us a, a thing or two about being slow to count people into the kingdom. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people pray with someone a sinner's prayer and then pronounce them a believer in heaven forever with all of us. Right? Especially, oh, they've been baptized. Right? It's just so quickly, right? They come to faith, they believe, they're baptized. It could be an emotional high, or it could be like Simon, right? Pursuing power, right? I see what the Christian life brings. It brings to me all this stuff. And Simon was in it for himself rather than truly in it for the Lord. And I think that, that time often is a good indication of where a heart genuinely is. I think Jesus, remember when he taught the parable of the sower and the seed? He talked about the sower going out in his bag of seed and he's, he's dropping it upon the different places and he, he drops it upon the hard soil and the, and the rocky soil and the thorny soil and the good soil and, and that that's on the rocky soil doesn't even grow up. But that that's on the, on, the, on, the, on the path rather, the hard soil, but that that's on the stony soil or the thorny soil, in both these instances we see some life sprouting. We see some, some seedlings starting to come up and it starts to sprout. But the rocky soil has no root, and so it fades away. And the thorny soil comes up and, and is choked out, and it fades away. It's only the good soil that, that stays true and stays beyond. And so here, think about the parable of Jesus. He casts these seeds out, four types of soil. One soil had no chance at all. Two types of soil sowed promise, but fell away. And one type of soil, one-fourth, not only showed promise, but continued to bear fruit, 30, 60, and 100-fold. The disciples, when they heard this parable, were confused by it. They didn't understand. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, do you not understand this parable? Mark 4, 13. This parable of the sower. You don't understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? In other words, this parable of the sower and the seed, that there are lots of people who are hard, more people who, who like it initially but are going to be choked out, like Simon. I don't know if Simon was rocky or thorny. I'm not sure if that exactly applies. But somehow he grew up but then faded out. But then there are going to be some who are going to be true and genuine. That's the key to understanding all the parables. You don't understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And so if you miss this parable, you misunderstand ministry. You misunderstand evangelism. You misunderstand how God's word works. And you will not understand the nature of God's word upon people. That, that, that don't be so quick to declare, wonderful, yes, they're in. But realize that time tells. And time was Simon told that he was in it for himself. And even Peter saw clearly that he, he uh, was filled with a gall of bitterness and a bond of iniquity. I have no idea what that means. But just maybe bitterness. Maybe, like, maybe they have it, but I don't. Right? And he's involved in the sin. It was clear to Peter. It was clear to all of his of his hard heart. So I just say in evangelism, let's learn from evangelism. Let's be slow to ascribe people in the kingdom. 
Let's uh, let time show. Second, let's personal search ourselves, right? Are you Simon? Are you saved? Do you think your profession is saving you? Do you think your baptism is saving you? Or do you think maybe you got this thing going with God that I, I come to church every week? I'm involved. I give my money to the church. All is well. I just do the things the church tells me to do. I'm a good member. I've heard many stories of elders and deacons coming to faith in Christ, meaning people committed to church, right? Just doing the, doing the church thing. Giving, serving, being involved but yet never being there. And that's with Simon as well, is that he was there, part of the throng, and, and then he had this opportunity and his heart was exposed. And Simon should be a warning to us all that when you pursue spiritual power, you need to pursue it the right way. Right? You, you need to realize that the power comes from God, it's not from yourself. You know, I've been reading in this book, uh, I forgot, I didn't bring it today, but it's a, it's a book about faith by Gary Thomas, Authentic Faith, I think it was called. He, he talks about what happens to people who believe first, right, come to see God in their life and see how he transforms their lives and how wonderful it is, right? That, 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 that they begin to shed some of their older sins and, the, and they begin to embrace the, the church and the church life and how much healthy that is and how much good it is for them and their family. But then he says, you know, over time what happens then is they enter the second stage, of all of a sudden seeing just the gospel's not so good for me. It is, but realizing that the extent of the call of that upon other people. Meaning that, that yes, it's good for me and there's some transformation in my life, but, but God calls me not just for good for me, but good for me so that I may be good for others. And, and uses it then to, to reach other people and to think about it. And that's when it's calls you for denying yourself and really checking how you have received Jesus. Only because God gives you everything or do you realize that God gives you everything so as to give away everything that you have? And that's where time tells, and that's where Simon, certainly he was, he was not receiving um, of the things of God for, his, for, for the use of others. It was just for himself. I mean, vaguely a little bit. Let, right? You give me money so that I can lay hands on other people and they can receive the power of God. He wants to be the conduit. Like He wants to be the show. But so likewise, right, when we pursue spiritual power, we need to pursue it the right way, realizing that God graciously gives us and grants us freedom and grace and change and transformation, that then as there's maturity and there's growth, then that that can be used for others outward. See, the power of the Holy Spirit is more powerful than any atomic bomb, and we ought to pursue the spiritual power in the right way. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us learn from Simon Magus. And, and those hearts that are convicted, I pray you'd convict them now. God, lest there be any longtime people at Rock Valley Bible Church who, who, from my standpoint, God, seem wonderfully well and committed to Christ, and yet perhaps they've got this religious thing going. I pray you'd use this story in, in your way, uh, God, for your will, for your glory. And just help us also to understand evangelism. God, realizing how many there are who hear and who experience some growth and excitement, but then when things get hard, they, they fall away because they've not been in it for the right reasons. God, they're not true and, and genuine and good soil. So God, we, we know the Holy Spirit has got to come among us. I pray, oh God, that, that, that for Rock Valley Bible Church, that we would know what it means to be a spirit-filled life. God, that, that, that helps and serves one another and encourages one another and reaches out even as 
the apostles did, even as Philip did when he went down to Samaria. He just spoke what was in him. He just spoke what he witnessed. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to be your witnesses for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.